Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 44A, an interview on writing contemporary history and the Obama presidency with Professor Claude Andrew Clegg. I'm excited to welcome Professor Clegg to the show today. Professor Clegg is a Lyle V. Jones Distinguished Professor at UNC Chapel Hill with a joint appointment in the Department of African, African American, and Diaspora Studies and the Department of History. His latest book, The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama, is the first major history covering both terms of the Obama presidency. And my listeners who've been following for a while might be thinking, Kenny, haven't we been talking about presidents in chronological order? Wasn't Garfield last week? Shouldn't Obama be 20 plus presidents away? And that is all true. But when you get a chance to talk about incredibly recent and impactful periods of history with someone like Professor Clegg, you don't say no. So I'm excited to welcome Professor Clegg to the show today. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'd love to start with what is it like writing history when the events are still fresh and almost everyone is still alive? That's a great question. Um, we historians tend to like to see the topic in the rearview mirror after the dust has settled and you're, you're speeding away and getting some distance. Uh, that way you get context and you also have hindsight. You know, that is, we as historians read the past with the hindsight of the present. Uh, and that's a really comfortable zone for us to be in. We're not quite like sociologists or political scientists or anthropologists who are just fine with looking at contemporary present stuff and and they, they're fine with the uncertainties of what's going to happen next. They, they're fine with sort of analyzing it, studying it as it's unfolding. Uh, we historians tend not, most of us tend not to operate like that, although there certainly, certainly there is a genre of recent history in which people are looking at things that happened during their lifetime or things that are very recent past. Uh, so that was, that was a perhaps the most interesting challenge of the whole piece that is watching something that you you're certain in your mind that it's historic. So, yeah. you know, you, you see the 2008 presidential campaign between this black guy from Hawaii with this exotic background, his Harvard education and so forth. And this um, two term Senator from New York, a former first lady and so forth. One of them is going to win the, the nomination either would be historic yeah, uh, and then if one goes on to win the presidency, that's 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 even more historic. So uh, I knew I was watching something historic, but I didn't know what that quite meant, except for the symbolism of a, of an African American or a woman becoming president. So that was a little outside the comfort zone, but I've come to to live with it. Okay, uh, the good thing about it is that, well here in the 21st century, there's just so much, Kenny, in, in terms of sources, yeah. uh, maybe too many sources, uh, with uh, the internet uh, and the digital world of sources, 24-7 media, you know, all kinds of visual uh, sources. YouTube is a really deep archive of things on the 21st century, 21st century politics, culture, and so forth. So in that way, it was, uh, I'm fortunate compared to the folks who study presidents you know, long ago, mm. in which there was no television. You, you said Garfield, so there's no right. television. He didn't have a Twitter account or anything like that. You you know, if you can't find the papers, then you can't find Garfield, right? Mm -hmm. um, he didn't leave, you know, his, his, his um, any video or anything for us. It's, it's all paper. Here, you know, uh, it's a multidimensional 
uh, presidency in which you have uh, this whole digital layer of, again, digital documents. And uh, as you, um, many of your listeners perhaps know, uh, President Obama is going to be the first president that doesn't print out all the papers, right, and put them in the archive. His entire presidential collection of papers is going to be digital. So I guess you just go to the archive and they, with your thumb drive and, you know, you yeah. download, you know, or probably, you know, you just see it all on the Internet. So that's yeah. that's great and strange at the same time. <laughs> yes, it right. is. yes, it is. In w- what ways is it harder or easier to write about something recent like Obama than writing about things that did happen long ago? So you do get that perspective. The dust has settled. Yeah, I think the hardest part is that uh, being outside of your comfort zone and as, as a historian and not knowing where the story ends. So uh, this book would have probably been written a, a few years ago and published a few years ago, except for I had to wait until June, t- January 20th of 2017 mm-hmm. for the history to end. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's a fallacy in regard to history ever ending. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, right. So historians write new histories on old topics every generation. That's why we still we're still getting, you know, Lincoln biographies here, you know, right. 160 years after his death. Someone still has, has something new to say about Lincoln. And that's fine. Uh, so the same will be this, uh, with the case with President Obama 100 years ago when you and I are both gone. Mm. Uh, there'll be people still writing about Obama. Uh, hopefully they'll be referencing my book. But th- th- <laughs> these things live. These this yeah. is a living history is a living thing and it's a fallacy that it stops. But I think we historians, you know, we impose periodization and dates on things all the time and end dates. So uh, that that's our way of imposing order on things that probably shouldn't so neatly be have order imposed upon them. So that I guess that's the hardest part of getting out of that mindset that uh, one, you can see all the sources and thus in, in and that things end and you can look at this thing in a finite way. Uh, those are fallacies. Again, new sources come up all the time. So we can look at old topics in new ways. Uh, and then uh, things don't just rupture, you know, although we, we think of this year ends this war or this year ends this depression. But these things, you know, whether it's a depression or a war or politics and political culture, these things keep going on and, and they're not as neatly bounded as we like to believe. The easiest part of it, again, is the sources, I think. Um, again, we probably have too much and you have to put on filters when you go to the internet. Um, so, yeah. because you know, everyone has a blog and sometimes it's, you know, if you're reading an article, it's, sometimes it's not the article so interesting. So interesting is the 100 or 150 comments about the article that's below the article, right? That's where the story is. The, the article, okay, it was a good article, but it's the back and forth, the, the new takes, the links that people are putting in those in, in, in the comment section, that's the real story. So I think you have to have a stronger filter now uh, because there's so much information out there, um, but that's the, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches. Again, you have uh, all kinds of digital archives, whether government records, whether it's, you know, YouTube is a vast archive of Obama's speeches and his, yeah. you know, his presidency is much of it's right there on YouTube. If you if you're looking for uh, speeches and foreign travel and, and commentaries and so forth um, and much of many government records, the White House archives, uh, such as it is, is available digitally uh, and, and so forth. So I, I would say that the broad range of sources the 21st century has allowed us to access from 
sitting right here in the office uh, on a computer uh, is the is the real um, bonus to writing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, um, it, you have to have a stronger filter so that you're able to filter out all the, of the background noise to your subject. I'd love to go into more detail on how did you go about writing this book? You you talked about there's all this out there. Can you share maybe who you talked to yes. as sources? What documents you had access to that you really leaned on? Sure, sure. So a, a range of sources um, uh, that are behind the book. Um, uh, there's There's an embarrassingly long notes section and bibliography at the end of the book about 150 pages of that uh, so yeah yeah it's about a fourth of the book uh, but you know it's, it's a kind of an academic historian's thing to do they document we document everything we see so no one can say oh well, a person didn't do their homework right uh, so we, we we make sure no one can you know reasonably claim that as much as we can uh, so in regard to documents and sources, uh, government sources, whether government records, the you know, Affordable Care Act, the impeachment articles for President Trump, uh, all kinds of other government reports, uh, task force reports on criminal justice reform and, and, and so forth, uh, laws of various sorts. Um, so I, all those things, fortunately, are in the, in the the government records. So most of them are in the public domain. They're pretty easy to yeah. get your hands on. Uh, President Obama's public papers, and when I say public papers, it's more or less all of his public pronouncements in office mm. uh, are available uh, digitally. Anyone can go and take a look at those. I think that they're up to about 2016. So I, I used for my book 2009 through about the end of 2014, early 2015. Mm. But every president, modern president, has their sort of public papers bound and, and the um, government printing office makes those available. Uh, so that was a wealth of things, just, you know, his everyday pronouncements. Uh, he's for this group, or he gave a speech here, or he had a statement about this incident or about this tragedy. Um, of course, memoirs, his books, uh, even the most recent one, um, I was able to use it, uh, A Promised Land, before my book actually actually was published. So it was great. Uh, memoirs about people in the, in the administration, of course, Michelle Obama's memoir, people like David Axelrod, uh, Axel, Axel his uh, chief advisor during the campaigns, David Fluff, uh, also an advisor, uh, people in the administration. It seems like everyone who goes into one of these administrations writes a memoir once they leave. And I think that's probably doubly or triply so with the Trump administration. Everyone's going to have their say, right? Uh, so that stuff is that's, that's rich. You know, again, you have to have your filter on in regard to how you use yep. political memoir. Uh, that's been helpful. Uh, I've talked to dozens of people and a few dozen of those people are listed in the bibliography, those that, that had sort of meatier things to say. So people who were close to him, um, his, uh, for example, Melanie Barnes, who was the assistant to the president. Also, she was the um, uh, the chair or director of the White House Policy Council. So she's one that's in the in the Oval Office all the time or a lot. So a number of uh, officials in the administration uh, I was able to talk to. Uh, not, unfortunately, not the big fish. You know, Eric Holder, the Attorney General, just wouldn't couldn't crack him. Couldn't, couldn't and that's not unusual. You know, this especially this close to having left left office. Mm-hmm. So uh, I couldn't crack that nut. Uh, but a number of the sort of mid- mid-level folks uh, I was able to get a hold of. James Clyburn, uh, the highest African-American in the Congress, he gave a, he was very gracious. He gave a really good interview. 
people who, who he met with in the civil rights community, people like Cornell Brooks, who was the head of the NAACP at the time, Mark Morial, who was the head of the Urban League, they met with him pretty regularly. And just to talk to them about you know, what kind of guys Obama like in a meeting? Is he mm, is sure. he the guy that we see in front of television, or is you know is it some other person? So they were good in regard to sort of you know, you know Obama un, kind of unplugged, not completely <laughs> unplugged, but yeah. kind of unplugged. Um, so that was and he's not really different from uh, um, Obama <laughs> plug <laughs> than what we see on television, yeah. Uh, yeah. unfortunately. So he's kind of the same guy um, in these in these meetings at the White House. Um, and I did, then I talked to people in his background, people like uh, Randall Kennedy, who was a, a Harvard professor when Obama came through as a graduate or law school student back in the in late 90s or late 80s, early 90s. Uh, so they had interesting stories to tell as well. So uh, and that's one of the bonuses of, of doing recent history where people are still alive, uh, as opposed to Mr. Garfield and others <laughs> from the 19th century. You know, we can't talk to those those folks contemporaries unfortunately uh I but the phone when i call <laughs> yeah yeah don't pick up the phone <laughs> don't pick up the phone yeah if, if they call uh but with, with uh more recent characters more recent uh uh people you can uh you can, you can a lot of those people are still alive and some of them will talk to you uh so that was that was a treat to be able to to talk to folks who were still alive. Uh, so yeah, and then uh, there's there's a decent literature on Obama, uh, nothing on his entire presidency yet. So um, uh, that's one of the good things about, you know, having written and published my book at this point in time, I think there's enough uh, in terms of sources and certainly hindsight to talk about his presidency. And then it's the first book that's the entire presidency from the beginning to end. And then um, you, uh, I bring it up through the Trump presidency. The book ends on Inauguration Day uh, 2021. Uh, so it, it places Obama in the context of at least three other presidents, Bush, Trump, and, and Biden. So whenever I'm doing research and writing a story, I always encounter something that surprises and fascinates me in the narrative. What was the biggest surprise you discovered while researching this book? Oh, okay. There, there were several. Um, I think the biggest was the tightrope that this guy is walking for eight, 10 years uh, as president, as a candidate, um, how, how he wore it fairly well. And that, not just him, his wife uh, and their kids, uh, the this, this sort of uh, tightrope that the whole family is walking, uh, knowing the size of the world uh, that you're doing is historic. You're the first African-American, first, first family in the history of the country and you know you need to wear that in a certain sort of way uh so that you're not the last african-american first family uh i think that's always operating in their in their heads that is how they're going to represent uh the country but also in regard to african-americans how are they going to represent um uh, that particular group well but also the tightrope of of policy how he's He's one of those people who seeks to center or just left of center. He's a consensus guy. He's, he's very cautious and pragmatic as well. Uh, so uh, always trying to walk that middle path, that tightrope, hoping nothing bad happens. And, and then you're on that tightrope as bad things happen. 
so the Tea Party, you know, explodes and, you know, he's the poster board for everything that's wrong with government and everything that's wrong with having a black guy in the White House and everything that's wrong with liberalism and everything. Uh, and then there's the Black Lives Matter on the other side. There's, there's uh, Occupy Wall Street protest against the nine or against the one percent. And so you're president and you're watching that. Um, and then there's a couple of wars abroad, of course, that you're keeping an eye on, too. Um, and then there's a guy who's claiming that you weren't born in this country in the first place uh, and, and, and shouldn't be there in the first place. And he's getting more and more popular in certain quarters. So just sort of walking the tightrope between all of this stuff and staying sane and, again, operating in your head, you know, are you the first black guy to do this? You kind of need to do it the best you can and, and because... Not only you're representing the nation, which you're doing first and foremost, but you're representing like 40 million other people who voted for you in high numbers and don't want to see you, you know, fall on your face because they'll be measured by what happens to you and what you do. And, and, you, and you know that as well as anyone. So yeah. sort of the tightrope that he's walking and I think how well he walks it, but at the same time, the sort of dangers that he's walking across. Yeah. Do, do you get any sense for how he coped with it and how much he paid attention to it? I mean, like you said, there's a million sources. There's a million voices that you're hearing right. you know, when you're president, if you open your ears to him. So so how did he cope with it? And were, were there any places that he, he focuses attention on or, or ignored? Yeah. Uh, to hear him tell it, he didn't focus on it. Yeah. I don't buy it. I, I know better than that. Hey, well, you know, I, yeah, I, that's, you know, that's a nice story to tell, yeah. right? <laughs> Is that I, you know, I just did my job and I didn't hear all this stuff that Fox News was saying about me and was being written in the National Review and what Trump was saying and, and the birth of people. Uh, that's not true. Um, I, he's a very focused guy, I think. Um, he, he's a hardworking, uh, he was a hardworking president, very smart president. But he's, you know, he's a person, you know, he's, he's a flawed in flawed human being like the rest of us. He cared about what people thought of him. He looked at the polls. They have to look at the polls, right? And they have to look at what's behind the polls. Uh, so, um, and, and he read the newspapers at night. That was one of his rituals. He'd get the policy papers and whatever he had to practice for for the next day, but he'd also get a stack of newspapers. And he, so he had a sense of what was going on in the world, what people were saying about him and so forth. I, I think that his family life helps ground him. Um, his wife, Michelle, uh, raising two girls, two children in the White House. Uh, and he he desperately wants to get that right. The fathering part, because he saw his father not get it right mm. uh, and leave leave his family uh, at a very early age. So he desperately wants to get the fatherhood thing right. Uh, and I think that helps ground him and helps, you know, provide some sort of a distraction against the sort of grind that the presidency can be on one's life and on one's, you know, longevity and, and so forth. Um, I think he has a circle of friends, um, but it's a very small circle and it's mostly a circle that's not based in Washington, DC. Some old Chicago friends. Uh, he has some genuine friends in the government. Um, Valerie Jarrett, uh, who was uh, one of the advisors that comes with him from Chicago to the white house. Uh, he and Eric Holder, his attorney general, for mo most of his presidency, I think they're genuine friends. There are a few others there, but he's very selective in regard to, to people who I think we, he would genuinely call friends. Uh, so outside of that very small orbit or circle of friends and um, um, his family, uh, his immediate family, Michelle, the kids, uh, I, I think it's mostly this guy coping and dealing with it and wearing it as as well as he as he could um yeah yeah
that that is just so wild to even try to picture yourself in in that situation and how you would handle all that. Um, okay, so you were writing this book, and you mentioned this. You're writing this book during the Trump administration, an administration that was very much a reaction to the Obama presidency. Did anything that happened during the Trump years change the direction of your work, your understanding of Obama's legacy, or your approach to your research and writing? Oh wow! Yes, yes, and yes. Um, just the the election of Donald Trump in November 2016 had to make us all think about where the nation was at the moment, I think. Um, and it ha- and that makes you rethink the Obama years too, uh, whether this is a fluke, um, which I don't think it was. Uh, and and uh, how was that possible where you could have uh, a guy who never had held elected office, never been um, appointed to any political office, um, you know, had a string of, you know, uh, failed businesses behind him, bankruptcies, multiple marriages, uh, not anything, not anything, not that anything's wrong with multiple marriages. But, you know, <laughs> when, you're, when you're appealing to the religious right in this country, there's something wrong with multiple marriages. Yeah. Um, but this guy, he becomes the vessel uh, for sort of the anti-Obama. And um, I think up till that night, November of 2016, most of the country thought that the next president was going to be a woman. This is going to be Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even Trump thought that um, from at least some of the reported. He, he was surprised that he won. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think if, you know, that's how I thought it, that she was going to win this. Whatever you thought about her, I thought that she was going to win this election. Um, so when she lost and, and, um, uh, and, and Trump won, I think that made unless you were already convinced that he was going to win, it made all the rest of us, 99% of the people who were surprised, um, rethink where the country was after eight years of having an African-American president and reelecting the guy with very comfortable margins uh, in terms of his election and re-election. And then this guy who is a very antithesis uh, of uh, Obama, he's, he's, he's purpose, purposely positioned himself as the anti-Obama. You know, I'm going to overturn, you know, everything this guy is about. And, and even beyond that, the guy doesn't even belong in the White House because he's born in Kenya. Um, so, yeah. you know, that's, you know, he's, he's purposely presenting himself as anti the last eight years. Mm. Uh, and for him to win makes you question, you know, where the country is and how to re- how to evaluate those eight years and what it what it meant. Uh, I think that race is a through line here. And in regard to the demographic change the country is going through, that's one way of understanding both Trump and Obama. Uh, Trump, Obama's possible because of the demographic shifts in this country, because you, you have a country that's increased, have its increasing large, large, large numbers of people of color in it and so forth. Uh, although most people who vote for Obama in both the elections are white Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and increasingly the, the electorate is, is um becoming less and less white, although we have a party that's becoming more and more dependent upon an aging white population. Uh, and it's the through line for Trump. I don't think you can make sense without uh, thinking about the racial lens in which Trump is so somewhat masterful, masterfully using uh, to get about half the country to look at the world land. That is, we were great at one time, 
and again, implicitly, we were great before this guy, before we got into office, or we're great before all these Mexicans were crossing the border, or we're great before all these Muslims came into the country, or we're great before all these these blacks in the urban areas uh, are voting five and six times during elections. You know, we're going to be great again, and we're going to build a wall, and we're going to have a Muslim ban, and we're going to, you know, so um, just that sort of bald face appeal to race, unfiltered. You know, he's he's the pure distillation of it. And and I think that's his calling card. Uh, I think there was roughly half the country wanted to hear that. And he gave it unvarnished um, and, and in simplistic words that that anybody can understand. Uh, so that was, to me, the big surprise, how the pendulum swung, you know, so so far from, you know, this black guy who gets elected to the highest office in the land, comfortable margins for election and re-election, uh, and then it swings to this this other guy who doesn't get elected, he doesn't win the popular vote, uh, but he wins the electoral college and absolutely, um, you know, he's, he's the most inexperienced of, it's politically experienced, of presidents since, I don't know, maybe. Herbert Hoover or someone like that. Uh, you'd have to go a long time, way, way back to find someone yeah. with neither experience, with no, no experience in government, whether as a general or some military official like an Eisenhower yeah. or, you know, a senator or governor or, or, or some sort of experience. But for roughly half of the country to say, that's all guy. <laughs> that's, you know, regardless of whatever else is going on with him, you know, we're going to trust this guy because he's promising to make the country greater again and again. Uh, that underneath that, what that means in regard to the sort of pushback about what Obama meant to those folks. Can you recall what you thought Obama's legacy was going to be like going into election night, you know, five years ago now, and then what you think it is now? Did it change? Did you think his legacy was something else before the Trump administration made you change your mind? So in regard to legacy, I, I don't see much in the way that's changed in my interpretation of Obama's legacy in over the last five years since he left office, four, four and a half years since he left office. Uh, the, the Affordable Care Act, I think, is front and center as far as the legacy is concerned. Um, uh, I think that the Affordable Care, look, the Affordable Care Act looks much more tame now than it did when it passed in 2010, although you could argue it was pretty tame then. Uh, there was no single payer. Uh, they made um, the administration drop the, the public the public option or option for it. Uh, it did expand Medicaid, um, but uh, it, you know it was originally a very conservative idea. This idea of mandating the purchase of of health insurance on the private market. You know how much more pro-capitalist can you be? That's, that helps the insurance companies pretty well. It's, it was Mitt Romney's idea in Massachusetts as governor there, although he, he repudiates it later when he runs for uh, the presidency. But it was a pretty sort of, you know, right of center idea, the idea of the individual mandate, mandating people purchase coverage as opposed to the government providing coverage, which is a more liberal idea. Uh, so uh, the Affordable Care Act, again, I think is his biggest legacy in regard to policy. Um, I think that there are some other things that he got the ball rolling on uh, that either Trump slowed down the ball or put it in reverse or Biden appears to be pushing it a bit far further. Criminal justice reform. Uh, there was there were a few reforms at the end of the Obama presidency in regard to sentencing. He used his clemency powers much more liberally in his last year or so of president of the presidency. Um, there were a number of uh, consent 
decrees that were um, started with various big city police departments by the Justice Department in the wake of some of the killings of unarmed African-Americans. So um, he has a legacy there of sort of getting the ball rolling. Of course, there's a whole lot that needs to be done in regard needs to be done in regard to criminal justice reform and reform of policing. Uh, but he gets the ball rolling on that. And at least there is some lip service about doing more with the Biden administration. Uh, climate change, there are some, there are some, uh, some minor accomplishments. We joined the Paris Climate Accord. Of course, Trump pulls the country right back out of that. And of course, Biden is put us, putting us back in. So the seesaw we're on. But that starts on, under Obama, sort of finally taking seriously uh, what we're doing to the planet in regard to fossil, fossil fuels. Uh, and, and there's some other things. Uh, he he um, uh, fortifies to a degree the social safety net in regard to, again, Medicaid expansion, expanding Pell Grants, food assistance, uh, income uh, or uh, earned income uh, tax credits and child tax credit credits. Um, so there, there are some things done in that way that survived him also. Uh, in regard to foreign affairs, uh, he's a wartime president from beginning to end, uh, as was George Bush before him, uh, as was Donald Trump after him. Uh, he does wind down our troop commitments in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. Um, you can't say that we want in either place and certainly not Afghanistan. Uh, so that's part of his legacy as well, uh, part of the legacy of, of both of his um, more recent successors. So um, I think that as we get further distance away from the Obama presidency, there'll be some things that come into clearer focus. I think our party system has gone under, you know, it was already under a certain amount of stress when Obama became president, not just the party system, but our institutions. Uh, the Senate being one uh, in the use or abuse of the filibuster. Uh, I think the Supreme Court uh, and the the way the court has been pretty thoroughly politicized. I think it's been a fallacy to think the court was never political, uh, but I think it's been politicized in a way. Uh, whether it's you know keeping Merrick Garland off the courts by uh, Republicans in the Senate and not allowing uh, him, uh, Justice Garland to even have a, a, a nomination hearing and more or less saving that seat until a Republican became president and allowing Donald Trump to nominate uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, for that seat. So I, I think our institutions continue to endure a stress test um, all the way up through the insurrection of earlier this, year, earlier this year. And I think we're still in the woods in regard to the institution, our institutions are going through that stress test and our party system uh, and the ability of the parties uh, and the Congress to get basic things done. You know, we were just facing what a, a debt cliff or debt ceiling crisis and yeah. that, got, that got pushed off to December. So we'll face it again in December. And that thing crisis. never comes up in the 19th century. We're never yeah, talking about the development crisis. Good of the for them. Yeah, it's a 20th century phenomenon. But this idea that you're going to vote to pay your pay your bills mm. uh, or that we're going to refuse to vote to pay the bills. Right. Uh, you know, money that's already spent. Uh, so if ever there was broken government or, or problematic government, we're looking at it. You are able to bring some experiential and professional perspectives that I cannot possibly bring to the Obama presidency. You're an African-American man. 
You're a scholar in African, African-American, and diaspora studies. What insight or perspective do you think your experiences and scholarship gave you as you wrote the history of the Obama administration? Um, I'll, I'll take the last part of that question first in regard to the scholarship first part. part. Yeah. So I'm a historian, um, and um, I appreciate the long view of things. So put if, if you... Just think of here now, mm. everything looks mo monumental and everything looks, you know, like a crisis and of, of proportions we've never seen before. And so take, for example, the pandemic. The history mm. is riddled with these things. Um, most of us were not around in 1918, in 1918 but there's a, there's a flu pandemic that was global and so forth. And this was um, an earlier time in medicine where you couldn't come up with a vaccine in, you know, eight or 10 months like they did with this vaccine. And People survived it, you know, people wore masks. The president, President Wilson caught that flu. He survived it. Um, so things that, you know, if you if you don't think historically mind or don't have the long views, the things that are going on in your contemporary world, uh, you're unable to contextualize them within this sort of longer understanding of history. So that was the thing that I hope to bring to bear in the study of the Obama presidency. I wanted to study why it was unique and historic and so forth, but I also wanted to study, study it against the longer backdrop of American history uh, and the history of American politics, presidential history, the history of race, the history of, of uh, uh, political culture in this country. So I, I think that the book is probably more of a history than biography, although the two genres intersect. Uh, so I'm, I'm less concerned with what, you know, who he talked to on this day, what he said on that day and so forth, than how people around him, how people in the American public uh, are experiencing those years, how they're experiencing the Great Recession, uh, that's the beginning of his presidency, how they how they experience his presidency, how they experience American uh, political culture, how they experience the campaign. So I'm much more interested and uh, the history of that time than just the sort of biography of this, this guy and what he's doing and what he's eating from day to day or what he's saying to his advisors. I'm much less interested. People will write that history, but that's less interesting to me than how Americans of various stripes, particularly African-Americans, experienced those eight years of his, his time in office. Uh, as an African-American man, I, I think that the significance of his presidency and his appearance on history stage um, has a lot to do with the symbolism of it. And of course, this sort of emotive or emotional, you know, um, uh, meaning of this happening. Um, I can remember on election day 2008 in November, I was looking at CNN and sort of flipping around channels, you know, looking at the, the returns and seeing who's going to call what state first and finally who's going to call this. And I can remember the banner headline, President-elect Barack Obama, and sort of gasping um, that, that, that that was possible, although, it, you know, he was doing well in the polls and John McCain was, you know, it didn't look like his, he was going to be able to pull this off. And he had put, picked Sarah Palin, who probably did not make him, you know, it did not, did not do any favors for him in regard to his electability. So Obama and Obama Biden were looking good in the polls as the next president, vice president. But no one had ever seen that before. Uh, a black guy elected to the most powerful office in the world and actually seeing it. 
Um, you know, it was my JFK moment. You know, if you ask your parents or grandparents, you know, for anyone who had folks in this country in 1963, November 22nd, 1 p.m. in the afternoon, what were you doing when you heard the news about JFK being assassinated? They'll tell you exactly what they were doing, who they were talking to. Uh, they'll, they'll be able to give you a full description of that moment. Um, so Obama being elected and seeing that news was my sort of JFK moment uh, of like, I'll always remember the feeling and the moment and, and my expression and so forth, uh, because, you know, it, it was just something that was surreal and I didn't, I, I knew it was possible, but <laughs> we'd never seen it before, right? Uh, so uh, immense pride in him, immense pride in country, immense pride in our system, the possibilities of America, uh, the promise of it. Uh, this guy with the funny name uh, from the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the dad's from Kenya, his mom's from Kansas, uh, can be president. Um, so just just a measurable pride, again, in his achievement and being in the country that, you know, having the long view of history has come a very dark path when it comes to the history of race. But for that to happen uh, and in my lifetime uh, to see that. Uh, so. Uh, and I carry that through the Obama presidency, just uh, as an African-American man, feeling very much invested in what happens with this guy, um, because uh, rather rightly or, or wrongly, he represents all folks who look like him, uh, whether in this country or abroad. Our hopes were pinned on him doing this well and not making a jackass out of himself or getting involved in some awful scandal and something. He avoided all those things. He was a serious, competent, smart guy uh, who handled the office, was reelected by sound majorities in the popular electoral vote. Um, so uh, in that way, uh, very proud, but at, at the same time, um, still my historian hat on, uh, not, not so proud of him that I could not critique him right. and couldn't see the flaws and shortcomings in his presidency. So the, the title of your book is The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. It, it would be kind to say the United States has a complicated history of race relations. It might be more accurate to say we have a horrific history of race relations in what ways did the Obama presidency move us closer to or further away from a more perfect union? I think that if we look at this as the glass half full, <laughs> yeah. or mostly full, <coughs> mostly full, I think that just the mere existence of this guy as president of the United States for two terms. <clears throat> It says something really stark about race in this country and where we've come from. Um, 43 guys before him were all white guys. Uh, so he's, he's unique in that way. Um, gets elected very comfortable margins that we don't see anymore in our elections. Uh, we see pretty close elections really since 2000 with uh, Gore versus Bush, very close rate elections, more or less two or three states, uh, sometimes just one state with the 2004 election of um, Bush versus um, the guy from the guy from Massachusetts, whose name is Kerry, uh, John Kerry, and, and Bush versus uh, Bush, uh, Bush versus Gore in 2000, just one state. Now, Ohio in the case of 2004, Florida in the case of 2000. 
separating the winner from the loser. So he wins comfortably in, in, in regard to electoral college vote and in regard to the um, popular vote in both elections. So that's, you know, that's big news in and of itself. And again, this is junior senator from Illinois. Um, you know, it's, it's, it says something great about the country that that's possible, I think. And Obama was not of the mind, and he said it explicitly, that he didn't believe his election uh, brought us into a post-racial moment. And in his most recent book, uh, he says, you know, the problems that the country faces are not going to be solved in one, one election. And he, he's right about and on both cases in regard to we're not being in a us not being in a post-racial nirvana uh, and one election not fixing everything. I think he did believe that um, he could take us into a post-partisan moment. Mm. That is, in the midst of this economic collapse, the mortgage industry uh, freezing up, can't get any loans, you know, uh, people losing their homes, uh, people losing jobs, about hundreds of thousands by the end of 2008, the automobile industry in free fall, we're getting ready to lose, you know, the American automobile industry and all the other things that come with the Great Recession. Um, I think that entrusting the country to this guy in the midst of this, and then by all rights, he should not have been reelected. You know, there's almost eight percent unemployment. Nobody gets reelected with eight or you know seven point eight percent. Unemployment. That last yeah. time that happened, it was with uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the Great Depression. And you know, this is—he was a unique case. Guy get four terms, and people just decided to stay with the same captain. So, by all rights, Barack Obama should not have been reelected, but he gets reelected anyway. Uh, so, I think all of that suggests that we're in a better place in regard to race than we were much, you know, through much of the history. Uh, of this country, we don't get to the postpartisan place that he wants to take us. And he learns that the hard way um, from the GOP. And his thinking was in the midst of this catastrophe, both parties would put together, put aside their differences and they pull up the country together. And, you know, maybe they'd argue later and bicker later about ideology or policy. But in the midst of this great recession, uh, we're going to set that aside and, and, and we're going to we're gonna lock arms and we're going to save America from economic collapse. And again, that doesn't happen. Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, says it very clearly. We, our number one task is to make this guy a one-term president. Mm-hmm. And he's as good as his word. Um, you know, the filibuster is his only real tool to oppose Obama. He, use it to, he uses it to devastating effect during most of Obama's presidency to make sure that uh, his jobs bill, his infrastructure, we were talking about infrastructure even back then, is this infrastructure bill didn't get passed, criminal law, the criminal justice reform, nothing on the climate, nothing on gun control can get past the Senate because of, of him. So uh, of, the, of the Democrats led by, or the Republicans led by Mitch McConnell. Uh, so we don't ever get to post partisan and we certainly don't get to post-racial, but I do think that uh, the Obama presidency um, and, and the possibility of it happening in the first place just says something about the possibilities of race and surmounting race as a handicap in American life. Although we, of course, have not done that, but just the possibility he, his election shines brightly 
as a possibility of that. The flip side of it, Kenny, um, that is the, the glass half empty or mostly empty in regard to race, is that uh, I think Obama crystallizes a certain opposition to him and a certain opposition to him politically, his politics, his ideology, his his policy positions, but also crystallizes an opposition to the very notion of a black guy in the highest office in the land. And throughout his presidency, their voices all through our political culture, through our media and so forth, make it very clear uh, that this is an opposition that's real. It's an opposition that's well-organized, it's well opposition that's well-funded, it's in the Congress, it's in the media, uh, it's, 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 and it's, it's everywhere through American, you know, social media and everywhere else, uh, that this guy should not be there. This guy represents the kind of America or changes in America or demographic turnover in America that is uncomfortable to a lot of folks. Uh, this guy does not represent, you know, uh, America and our sort of traditional vision of America. Um, and these views are weaponized. Uh, they're weaponized by the Tea Party, uh, which uh, is uh, it's ideological. The opposition is ideological, but also I think there's a racial component to that, to the Tea Party opposition to Obama, the idea of Obama. I, I think most starkly is weaponized by Donald Trump, who, if there is any political genius about him, it is the fact that he had his his finger on the pulse of about half of Americans in this country and the entire, nearly the entirety of the Republican Party. This guy who's not a politician, he's coming, you know, he's coming out. He was, you know, he's a um, he's an entertainer uh, before that a developer. But he, he, his his claim to fame most recently was the Apprentice TV show. Uh, so he's coming out of that, but he has an uncanny ability to read the, the political landscape that he's looking at. Um, and he sees nativism, he sees uh, growing hostility towards immigrants, an idea of immigration, he sees Islamophobia, he sees uh, uh, a backlash against the demographic changes going in this country, the idea of Obama, and he, he weaponizes it and gives voice to it. And not a sophisticated voice. Now I don't think that it would it would have worked out as well if he just was another politician's voice. It was sort of out of left field. This guy's gonna just come say what people whisper. He's gonna come say what people might say, you know, behind closed doors. He's gonna come say it's too many too many Mexicans in this country. We need to build a wall, and we need to make the Mexicans pay for the wall. And there are too many Muslims in this country. We're going to we're gonna ban them all uh, because they have a, whole, they're a bunch of terrorists. Uh, or a black guy should not be sitting in the Oval Office, or our inner cities are all war zones where black folks are shooting each other up and they shouldn't have, they shouldn't be voting as well. Uh, he just said it. Uh, and about half the country bought it. And they bought it from this reality TV show guy with the, again, the multiple collapsed businesses and the bankruptcies and the pension for telling tall tales and falsehoods. He was the vessel. Uh, and he got, he wrote that to, to election. So I think that's the sort of darker side of how race operated through the Obama years that it, one, on the one hand, you have this, this, this possibility of, of race not being a handicap and Obama sort of embodying that. And, but at the same time, 
this longing for a time when, when race was a handicap and it protected a certain kind of privilege and, and you didn't have this kind of diversity that you had in this country. And you, you know, you shut the borders down, you know, if you, if you can to get back to this point where America could be quote unquote great again, well before the time this, this black guy showed up in the Oval office. Mm-hmm. Taking kind of a, a half step away from Obama and looking more at your, your, as a historian of race in so many ways, you know, the history of the United States, we have 100 years of slavery, roughly, uh, roughly 100 years of Jim Crow, a long historic mistreatment of Asian, Latino and Native Americans. There are wounds in this country from its history of race relations. And you mentioned, you know, maybe a lot of people thought electing a black president Obama would, would cure it. But he said, like, no, but that's not how this works. What do you think is needed to heal the wound of race relations in this country? Wow. Um, it, that's, that's a hard question because it's such a heavy lift. Um, I, I think there's a, you know, there's a saying when, you know, the person's addicted to something, the first thing, or, you know, they're, um, they're trying to get over a problem. The first thing is to get past the denial, right? That is to admit you have a problem. Uh, so I, I think that a good number of Americans, uh, if you look at the polling, say that we need to have, uh, we need to reform our policing in this country. Uh, there are a good number of Americans say we need to reform our voting system in this country. There are a good number of Americans that, says, that say that income inequality is a problem in this country, that more people should be covered by health care. So I, I think that um, we have a sense of what the problems are. Uh, I think that, you know, regardless of, you know, what's going on now with state legislatures passing all these laws about critical race theory and so forth. Uh, I think that uh, probably the average American knows that uh, we have a problem with with incarcerating people in very large numbers and that falling disproportionately on uh, African-American men. I think the most of us know there's a problem with wealth distribution in this country and most of that too much of our wealth is concentrated in the hands of the very few and, and people at the bottom tend to be disproportionately uh, brown uh, and black. Uh, I think that uh, uh, most of us, uh, you know, those who will, you know, speak the truth to ourselves and to others and do even some modest research uh, and credible sources kind of know what the problems are. Mm-hmm. I, I think that putting in place the solutions is the bigger thing and it's going to be the harder lift uh part of that will, re- will require some serious reform of our institutions um the money in our politics much of that needs to be taken out so that we can elect people to office who are not beholden to very narrow interests and whoever the donors are uh so all of the dark money all the unaccounted for money all of the big corporate money uh, we need to try to read our politics of that as much as possible. I think gerrymandering and so sort of drawing safe districts for politicians uh, so they're only accountable to a, a certain base of voters and don't have to speak to a wider array of voters because their district is written and it's drawn in such a way that it's a safe district. That is, people who are, are like minded or people who are voting for you because they packed your district with people who tend to vote your way. Uh, I, so I think that as much as possible, we, we need to. Um, uh, have some reform in how our districts are drawn. I think uh, the ballot box needs to be opened up. We're seeing a full-blown assault uh, and making it hard for people to vote. I think we should be 
trying to increase the number of Americans uh, who are, are voting and to hear their, their voices uh, and to be accountable politicians to those folks who are voting as opposed to the folks who are paying for the campaigns. Um, I think that uh, there's, and then there's a slate of policies. I think you have to fix some of those things first before you can get the policies in place. And policies in regard to healthcare, in regard to support for public education, um, in regard to housing, in regard to infrastructure. I think we're kind of serious about infrastructure now, um, but we don't have to build yet though, do we? Uh, so in regard to infrastructure, in regard to family leave, there's, uh, you know, we're the, we're the richest poor country in the world. That is for all of the wealth of this country, um, you know, we're, we're still talking about people not having health insurance. Uh, we're still talking about a homeless problem. Uh, we're still talking about people, children going to bed hungry. Uh, in a country, the wealthiest in the history of the world, we shouldn't be having those conversations, not about this country. Uh, so I think of fixing a lot of those things will address many of the issues in terms of race uh, in regard to, again, voting rights, um, for enforcement of civil rights, uh, fixing our criminal justice system and reforming how people are sentenced and how people are policed and so forth. Uh, wealth distribution, which has a lot to do with tax policy, but also has a lot to do with, with um, job training and incentivizing um, employers to hire folks that they tend not to hire and so forth. So there's a there's a lot of heavy lifting to do. But I think even before you can do the heavy lifting, you have to have people in place who would, who will get the policy right first uh, and don't feel beholden to interests uh, that are very narrow interests uh, with this you know, corporate interests, whether it's fossil fuel, whether, whether it's, you know, whatever the interests are, um, and politicians who don't feel that they can do outside or do anything outside of those interests, or they're just speaking to the base of voters uh, that their safe districts are are run by or are, are beholden to. I just think it's so weird that at the congressional level, it's not so much that we pick our congressmen as they pick which voters they want. That seems to be backwards for democracy. The last question I'd love to ask you is the question I ask everybody about any person I talk to about. And what lessons in leadership do you think we could learn from Barack Obama? Oh, there's several lessons in leadership. Just observing him over the last 25 years, he's been on the public stage when he first ran for a seat in the Senate, state Senate in Illinois. Um, he's, he's a very pragmatic person at least when I think he's just, just a pragmatist period he's a realist um, and there's a realist pragmatic strain in American political leadership you could say that Bill Clinton was somewhat that as well you know he looks it depends on what dad week you called him uh, he, he looks more Republican than Democrat uh, and he was not loath to seeking the center and cutting deals with Republicans on welfare reform and criminal justice and policing and, and, and so forth. Uh, some say he threw Democrats and liberals under the bus, uh, but uh, I think he read the, he read the tea leaves and understood the times that he, that he was in not to, you know, justify what he did. But I, I think in regard to being a realist about what's possible and trying to get reelected, he understood the political culture and times he was in. So Obama is from that tradition, uh, he's a principled man, but I don't think he's so principled that it it paralyzes him so that he can't try to reach consensus, even with those on the other side of the aisle. Uh, so he's, um, it's, it's strategic leadership. It's pragmatic. It's 
it's incremental leadership. He's he's not a radical. He's not even all that liberal. He's just left of center on most things. Uh, and, and he wouldn't pass muster as a progressive today um, compared to what the Democratic Party is proposing in regard to spending and regard to all kinds of policies in terms of climate change and child tax credits and uh, direct stimulus package, you know, stimulus payments to folks and, and so forth. Uh, Obama understood that even if he wanted to, he could not have been talking in the way that Joe Biden is about these things. But I also don't think that's his natural self either. I think he's much more comfortable at the sort of uh, crossroads uh, at the center of the eye of the storm cutting deals um, in a sort of pragmatic centrist way that I think that was most comfortable for him. So it's, it's, it's strategic pragmatism. It's uh, a realistic understanding of the possibilities uh, and it's operating within the realm of the possible. It's consensus building as well. Uh, and try not to bargain away uh, as uh, too much of your principle. I do think he's a he is a principled man. He's an ethical man. He has core convictions, but I do think he's one who's prepared to bend if it means getting half a loaf, uh, and um, as opposed to no loaf at all. If you'd like to hear more from Professor Clegg, you can always enroll at UNC, which you know might come with free basketball tickets. I don't know. Uh, or you can pick up The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama from your nearest bookstore. You can also find him on Twitter at Claude Craig and online at www.claudeclaig.com. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Ryan. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music on today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll take a look at the life and presidency of Chester A. Arthur. And we'll ask the question, if the whole country has written you off as a good-for-nothing stooge, can you change if at least one person believes in you? That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.